Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Right, let us continue with Mark 1. I said at the end of the last session, I was going to briefly chat about my title, our Bible study at the beginning of the world, and I also want to briefly talk about translations. I am using the Common English Bible. That's the one I tend to be reading from. I quite enjoy reading from it. I don't pretend it's probably it's probably not the most academically uh, rigorous. Uh, at university, I use the Revised English, uh, or maybe it's the New Revised English. That was mine. I also like very much like David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament, which really seems to preserve a lot of the flavour and idiosyncrasies of the uh, authors. So I really recommend those. But I, at the moment, I'm, I also quite enjoy teaching or working from this common English Bible. I have one that's called the Women's Bible. A lot of the study notes and guides are from women scholars or ministers, which which uh, highlights just new aspects that that normally gets overlooked. So anyway, that's good stuff. And I like it. I'm not a Bible, I'm not a translation snob. I don't I think the best translations are the ones you actually use. But I also think that it's a good idea not to stick with just one all the time because things get missed, biases get confirmed, voices get overlooked. The Bible is a complex beast. Many, many different books speaking with many, many different voices. Oh, covering a span of many, many years. And none of the, if you're reading it in English, you are not reading it in its original language at all. And when you're reading the New Testament, the Gospels, you are reading books written in ancient Greek that are themselves translated memories and quotes from somebody speaking in Aramaic. So there's a lot of different ways that the Bible can become complex and it's that is not to say it's not reliable it's not to say it's the translations are not good because they are good and they are all done from people who are working very hard to be as excellent as they can but it's just to say that it's worth spreading uh, hedging your bets or spreading the bets and have, pay attention to more than one if you're a protestant go read the new jerusalem bible the catholic bible uh, if you're a catholic try the niv if you're only addicted to the NIV, try reading N.T. Wright's translation or David Bentley Hart's. There's a lot of variations out there which just help to bring new life to words that you may have found familiar. Anyway, the other thing is I call this the Bible study at the beginning of the world. There's a lot of apocalyptic language swilling about us right now, as you may have noticed. And the apocalyptic language... A lot of it comes from Mark and a lot of uh, there's a whole chapter in Mark we're going to look at which is about apocalypse but apocalypse does not mean the end of the world apocalypse always means the end of one era and the beginning of another every apocalypse comes with a new beginning Jesus and all uh, the, the language of apocalypse in the New Testament always comes accompanied with language of birth pangs for example a woman's under extreme pain and pressure but at the end her part of her world ends and yet that ending of one world begins a new one a new life and this is the language of 
birth and of birth pangs that the New Testament always uses. And you'll see that whenever it talks about apocalypse. And the idea here is that the end of the era is a good thing. The end of one era and the beginning of another is a good thing. Generations, every generation has an apocalypse. Every generation ends and sees new life come from its ending. And the early Christians, when they did their kingdom thinking, this is how they thought. They were seeing the end of one regime, the end of one era, the end of one set of systems, or uh, sometimes it's re referred to as a corrupt generation, and the beginning of something new. So we are going to be doing our Bible study. Although everything is ending in one way, this is also the beginning in others. So we're going to do our Bible study at the beginning of the world. Mark 1, 16 onwards. I ended by talking, uh, last time I ended by talking about Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. The, the kingdom where you can say yes to God is here. You can do it now. Turn from your old generation, your old ways, repent and trust the good news. The other word we want to talk about here is belief or trust or faith. I said I'd start at 16, but actually let's stick on 15 just for a second. This is another key, key phrase here that we need to remember. Jesus loves belief. Jesus loves faith. My translation here says it's trust. The word is pistos, uh, which I suppose you could say it's a Greek word, pistos, and it means, well, it gets translated as faith, trust, belief in English. But to be honest, you'd go less wrong less often if you could substitute the word allegiance for faith. And if you think about the fact that we often think, don't we, that belief is like a function of understanding or knowledge, or perhaps we think that belief is some sort of wish fulfillment. If I could only crystallize in my mind clearly, if I could wish something hard enough, then it would happen. And Jesus rewards it. If I, if I can see it clearly in my mind, if I can project what I want into the universe without any doubt, then it will happen. Jesus said it will happen. That's what belief means. Or we maybe think that belief is to do with knowledge so, or understanding. So if, if only I knew enough about Jesus, if only I knew enough about miracles, if I understood the Trinity, or if I understood how the atonement theory works, if I understood these things, then I would have belief. But if I don't understand them, now I have a crisis of belief. Or if I didn't get the thing that I projected into the universe with my clear vision, then I have a crisis of faith. Well, the problem with all this is that you're forgetting the politics of it. Pistos means allegiance. Pistos means faith in the form of you trust a person. The opposite of belief and faith in the New Testament is not doubt. The opposite of faith in the New Testament is offense or shame. And we're going to see this, how this is what happens. You can understand and acknowledge that a miracle happened and still not have faith in Jesus in the New Testament. And likewise, you cannot understand or acknowledge that any of the crazy things he said are true and still have faith in Jesus in the New Testament. Faith is B 
being with a person because you trust them, even if you don't understand them. So if somebody was to say, I've used this before in, in teaching groups, you get somebody to lift a fist and say, follow me. Anyone who follows me is going to get ice cream. And if that person jumps up and marches out, and then everybody else in the room is in stunned silence, and then some people get up and follow them, and they go out. Now, the persons that, that, that are following you out the door, they don't know how you're going to give them ice cream. If you ask them, if you said, do, do, do you have a, a vision of their bank account? Do you know how much money they've got? Do you know where the ice cream shop is? Do you know how this is going to happen? Well, the response would be, well, I don't know how it's going to happen, but, but I trust you. I want to be where you are. And likewise, if you're in a room and somebody says, anyone who follows me is going to get ice cream, and they march out, and if some people follow them, the rest of us would sit in the room and we'd look at each other and we'd say, well, I guess they believe them. Belief has to do with being seen to be with someone, with following someone. It doesn't have to do with understanding it or being able to articulate the Trinity or talk about how Jesus died and rose again and have six clever answers to six complicated questions. Belief is not related to apologetics in the New Testament. It's related to faith and offense, not to understanding and an argument. The opposite of belief in the New Testament is not doubt. It is shame. It is offense. It's a moral position not an intellectual position. Now is the time. Here comes the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Repent, turn away, turn from your old self and come into the new way of living. Be seen to be with me because this is the news that your rightful king has come and broken the siege. Verse 16, as Jesus passed alongside the Galilee Sea, he saw two brothers. And now we're going to start to see people believing in Jesus. Simon and Andrew, throwing fishing nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, he said, and I'll show you how to fish for people. Come, follow me. Come, believe in me. Be seen to be with me. Right away they left their nets and followed him. They had faith in him. They didn't understand him, but they had faith in him. After going a little further, he saw James and John, Zebedee's sons, in their boat, repairing the fishing nets. And they also believe Jesus. And now the first thing that happens. So we've had Jesus come out of the wilderness. We've had God say, this is my son. We've had Jesus say, the kingdom of God is at hand. We've had him call his disciples and start to see the beginning of belief, uh, which is the same as him drawing together new citizens for his kingdom. And now the first thing he's going to do is he goes into Capernaum. Verse 21. And he goes on to the Sabbath. Oh, there's a word there. Immediately on the Sabbath. You'll notice in Mark, there's a lot of immediately. It's like if he was a filmmaker, he'd be a quick edit. Very quick. Lots of immediate, snappy, immediately, immediately, immediately. There's not a whole lot of padding in Mark. And the idea here seems to be, we're going to see this later as well, but the idea is that discipleship is about, in some ways, an immediate response. There's a line that's drawn in the sand. Are you on the side with Jesus or not? So immediately is a challenge 
also to us readers. Immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus enters the synagogue and starts teaching. So here comes one of the first things that Jesus does. Verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them with authority, not like the legal experts. This is another charge, not a charge, this is another thing that happens to Jesus a lot. People are amazed or astonished at his teaching. The word here, amazed, would be the kind of word you would use for if there was an earthquake and you had to grab hold of the nearest pillar to hold yourself up. You could say the people's world was rocked and they wondered at his authority, not like the legal experts. Here's another word, authority. Now, authority. Do you remember if in last session I talked about how Jesus is connected to as an agent of creation he's linked to the beginning of the world and he's linked to the holy spirit who is the agent of that brings order out of chaos jesus as someone who was there at the beginning is how he is seen to have authority in the new testament unlike us moderns us moderns have a sense that the most up-to-date thing is the most authoritative thing so for us Modernity brings authority. So if you were to write an essay for me, and if I looked at all the uh, bibliography, and you'd only put in books from the 1970s and 80s, I would put a little comment saying, yeah, you need to deal with the most up-to-date knowledge. You need to deal with the latest ideas, because we have this bias, and we think the latest is best. Well, this is not, this is the opposite of the mindset in the first century. If you think about it, the early church is in a competition with others and the biggest stick to beat down the early church is your guy's just new how does your does your guy know we're part of an ancient jewish tradition we're part of ancient greek philosophy we're part of the ancient egyptian traditions your jesus guy is just new where did he come from so a lot of the New Testament actually spends a lot of intellectual and emotional and uh, moral effort on demonstrating that Jesus is antiquity, because antiquity lends itself to authority. So uh, part of the goal of the Gospels is to remind or to reinforce the idea that Jesus has authority, because Jesus was there at the beginning of everything. People were astonished. Their world was rocked by his teaching, for he was teaching them with authority, not like their legal experts. Verse 23, suddenly, or immediately, there in the synagogue, a person with an evil spirit screams out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? How have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One from God. All right. The first thing you got to think Verse 23, Jesus is in a synagogue and there's an evil spirit. So one of the first things you're supposed to think is, how the hell does an evil spirit get into a synagogue? When Jesus does his exorcisms, when he purges evil spirits, when he silences them, also when he purges illness and cures diseases, Jesus is demonstrating authority not over just that person or that spirit he's a in the gospel of mark it's like there's different areas or spheres of influence and jesus goes and he 
purges that sphere. He shows his authority over each sphere. And this is no different. So here he's gone into the sphere of the synagogue. And he meets a Jewish demon. And he's going to show his authority over a Jewish demon. And in the next chapter, he's going to go through, show authority over a Gentile demon. And this is part of Mark demonstrating these aren't random events. These are Jesus exerting authority over different spheres of life, each one which has captured and bound people in different ways. And what he's going to do as the rightful ruler is he's going to break the siege and release the captives out into the open air. And he does this here in the synagogue. Suddenly, there in the synagogue, a person with an evil spirit screams, What have you to do with us? Or what do we have in common? Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One from God. Silence, Jesus said, verse 25. Now, here's another motif in the Gospel of Mark. Why is Jesus always telling people to stop talking about him as the Son of God? Why, when people say you're the Messiah, does he tell them to shut up? Why, when people are trying to follow him as a Messiah, does he run away? This is a common motif. It occurs prominently in Mark. It does not occur in John so much, and it's less in Luke and Matthew. But this is a feature that Mark has really emphasised. And in scholarship, we call it the messianic secret. It's one of the themes that Jesus in Mark very specifically does not want people to talk about him being the Messiah. And here, the very first thing he does is he, he stops a demon from saying it. Well, essentially what's going on here, and we're going to see this, is that what Jesus is doing is he is undergoing a re-education campaign. He's re-educating people about what a Messiah is. The shorthand is everybody was waiting for some sort of brave heart, some sort of nationalist, violent folk hero who's going to come and rescue the people in the greatest hour of need. Think King Arthur, or like I said, Braveheart. Think some, some violent war hero who comes back and redeems the people who are living under the taint of Gentile domination. And that's what the Messiah was. And Jesus constantly has to put the brakes on that. He has to stop people from singing off the wrong hymn sheet. And what is more, from making him sing off the wrong hymn sheet. Which is why here, he has to tell the demon to be quiet. Now the demon, in a way, gets it right. You are the Holy One from God. Well, in the ancient world, to know someone's name is to know their destiny. To name someone, to know their true name, was to in some way have uh, power over them or to, to control, to know something of their past, was to also know something of their future. Think of the way that children in the Bible are named symbolically to represent certain features of God that the family is meant to remember, for example. Or think of the way that later on we're going to see the villagers in Jesus' hometown say, we know who you are. You are the son of Joseph. You're the son of Mary. We know who your brothers and sisters are. They think that by naming a guy and knowing where he comes from, that they can control him and put him back in the box. 
And this is what's happening here. The demon is knowing Jesus. He's trying to control Jesus's destiny. And Jesus says, no, none of that. Silence, Jesus says, rebuking the demon or speaking harshly. The word rebuke here sometimes gets translated into exorcism. And there's a lot of rebuking going on, which we'll see. He exorcises. He sends the demon out. Come out of him. The unclean spirit shook him and screamed. Then it came out. What do you think is one of the more interesting and unique things about verse 26? The unclean spirit shook him and screamed. Then it came out. There are no exorcisms in the Old Testament. If Mark is the first gospel then Mark has the first exorcism of any demon in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of spirits being, uh, like Saul is troubled by an evil spirit and David plays his harp. There are spirits that are calmed, but being able to look a demon-possessed person in the face and say, spirit come out or be gone, that is not one of the toolkit of a prophet in the Old Testament. This is not part of what it was to be a holy man of God. The exorcism of demons is part of what makes Jesus so authoritative, so unique, and as we will see, so troubling to the people around him. Everyone was shaken and questioned amongst themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He even commands unclean spirits and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread throughout the entire region of Galilee. We're starting to see now the groups of people who are... The, pay attention now. That this is the beginning of one of the... Uh, a character in the Gospel of Mark. And that character is the popular mob. The popular swarm of people is one of the groups that Jesus is going to have to reckon with. And they're starting to grow right now. The news is spreading. People are wondering. I also want to pay attention to the word unclean spirit. The word cleanliness is important in the Gospel of Mark and in anywhere. Um, uh, essentially, if you are a chosen people of God, then you are set aside, you are pure, and part of your role is to remain the way you're supposed to remain going in the direction that you've uh, been set. So I think the idea is not that you be, st remain clean so that God will choose you. It's you are chosen, therefore remain clean. So anything that harms that is seen as a, any sin or illness or uh, issue of blood is, is going to make you unclean. It's going to mar the the image and uh, demons were seen as unclean spirits as well this is part of uh, an, uh, an assault or an offense against social purity and, and intactness and it is worth pointing out that Jesus embraces impurity all the time he's always going into places that make him unclean the uncleanliness seems to have no power over Jesus he infects he infects the dirt. The dirt does not infect him. 
And Jesus is going to have some very specific things to say about cleanliness in, in a bit. So then Jesus goes, uh, he leaves the synagogue and he's got a lot of his disciples around him. He's starting to gather some people. And Simon's mother-in-law is there and she gets healed and raised up. and She starts to serve. And then we're starting to see the ministry spreading. Jesus has brought in, people are bringing to Jesus those who are sick or demon-possessed. The whole town is gathering to be near the door. He heals many who are sick with all kinds of diseases and he throws out many demons. But again, here's the messianic secret. Verse 34, he doesn't let the demons speak because they recognized him, because they were going to try and dominate his agenda. I suppose there's a conversation to be had about demons. Not everyone will literally believe in literal bad spirits. And I know there is a tradition that likes to rewrite demons or reimagine them as mental illness or something like that. So, I mean, that's fine. That's another conversation for another time. But when you do that, at least know that you are stepping outside of the world that Mark is painting. Mark is not having that in his mind. He really does think these are agents of chaos. And it's going to be related to the language of son of God language, in fact, because the the world here is a world of, well, in the Old Testament, the son of God is in fact a generic term which applies to all lesser deities, lesser spiritual beings. Son of God can apply to angels as well as demons in the uh, Old Testament. And it's like, a, I suppose you'd say, small s, small g, son of God. It's, it's just a generic term. And so, which again, always has to do with authority. So the, in the Old Testament, the sons of God, they gather around the throne of the Most High and uh, which is Yahweh and then the sons of God for example in Psalm 82 they're gathered together in the throne room and then they're told they're doing a bad job of ruling the earth they're leading the world into chaos and violence and God has to tell them and reset them and correct them and part of the story which we'll get to in the rest of the New Testament is the story of how the sons of God the lesser spiritual beings who have rebelled are doing a bad job are being replaced and purged and that the rule is being given to Jesus who's the son of God and to his people his people in his kingdom who are also now called sons of God so again this language this spiritualized language we we do it a disservice if we forget that there is a real element here it's vibrating with authority and rule and part of the reason why a demonic in influence on your life is so bad is because it's leading you to chaos it's leading you out of order and so part of the language of exorcism and rebuking and is the language of putting things back to rights and again that has a a shalom and everything in its right place it has a social political factor here of things being done well and rightly so I'm just going to keep talking about demons, if you don't mind. And demons are always spiritual, but they are also always socio-political. They always have something to do with order and domination over others. 
So Jesus uh, doesn't let the demons speak because they recognize him. Early in the morning, well before sunrise, Jesus rises and goes to a deserted place where he could be alone in prayer. Simon and those with him tracked him down. Everyone's looking for you. And now comes the messianic secret again. Let's head the other direction to the nearby villages so I can preach to them. That's why I've come. I call this Ninja Jesus. Ninja Jesus. Jesus in Mark is always ducking and diving. He rarely answers a question directly. He slips into villages and he sneaks out again. Listen, if Jesus is God, he's telling us something about God's character. Let's head in the other direction to the nearby villages so I can preach to them. That's why I've come. Jesus does not sing off the hymn sheets that he's been given. He travels throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and throwing out demons. Do I want to say something about Galilee here? Yeah, I've got some time. Galilee. Uh, Galilee is the region that was well known. So Jesus is from Galilee. It was a region that was well known for producing brigands and uh, ruffians and uh, sort of freedom. No, not freedom. Yeah, freedom fighter types, really. So a brigand in, in the word that the New Testament uses is lestes. The lestes, which uh, you're going to see them, they're going to get one's going to be crucified on the other side of Jesus at the cross. Two and English we call them thieves, but they weren't really thieves. They were highwaymen or brigands, and the, and the idea was that uh, Rome is built was building the roads. Rome was controlling the land through its roads, and so too. To be a highwayman was in some ways to also be a traitorous, to be a freedom fighter, right? So it wasn't just a house thief. These laystays, these people who attacked the roads were also in some ways seen by Rome as treasonous or uh, assaulting the peace of Rome. So there was a political edge to it. And the laystays were highly associated with Galilee. And there's a lot of Galilean laystays. It seemed to be a hotbed for this kind of thing. So Jesus being from Galilee had that. It's, it's obvious as well. When Rome looks at Jesus, when, uh, when others look at him, when people of authority in the Gospels look at Jesus, they don't quite know what he is, but they think he's some sort of lay They think he's some sort of freedom fighter, upstart, rebel, rebellion leading king. Jesus, here's Jesus, king of the Jews, right? Um, why have you come to me? Do you think I'm starting a rebellion? Think of all those times. So it's just worth paying attention to that Galilee here, where Jesus is from, is a region that itself is associated with a disorganized opposition to Rome. And uh, the Galilean accent was not a sophisticated accent. Um, it's the accent that the serving girl hears when, Pe when Peter is warming his hands at the fire when, and he, then he disowns Jesus three times. She understands, she hears his accent. It was an accent that was not sophisticated. It stood out. Bit of a, a yokel accent. So again, people speaking with authority with a Galilean accent was part of the offense that you had to step over if you were going to have faith in this guy. If you were going to be seen to be with him and not be ashamed by him, it involved things like his accent. Verse 40, a man with a skin disease approaches Jesus and falls to his knees and begs, if you want, you can make me clean. Incensed, Jesus reaches out his hand and touches him and says, I do, be clean. 
Sternly, Jesus sends him away, saying, don't say anything to anyone. Instead, go and show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifice for your cleansing that Moses commanded. This will be a testimony to them. All right. What's going on here? Is Jesus mad at the man with the skin diseases? Well, no, he's not mad at the man. Incensed, passionately angry, Jesus reaches out his hand and says, I want to be clean. Pay attention to this. Just like every exorcism of a demon is in some ways a socio-political statement, every single healing in the Gospels, every healing in, the, in all the Gospels, is a political act. If you were ill, you were seen to be unclean. If you had skin problems, you were unclean. Being unclean meant you were kicked out of the group. It meant you were excised from the community. It meant you lived in exile until such time as you were clean again and could be brought back. This man was meant to go to the temple. It was the temple's job to declare people clean. It was the temple's job to bring them back into the fold, to reintegrate them back into relationship, to be part of... The temple had a socio-political aspect to it. If it declared someone clean, they were back into the group. Jesus is mad at the temple. Why won't the temple do this for you? I'll do it then. Fine. Jesus makes the man clean. He declares the man clean. Jesus takes into himself a function that only belonged to the temple. He's making a statement about what kind of people he's going to have around him. So he makes uh, the man clean. And then he says, go and rub their noses into it. This will be a testimony to them. You go show them what I've done. And this is going to be an issue that's going to dog Jesus all the way. We've just met the mob crowd, the popular crowd, as one of the features or one of the characters in this story. Well, another one is the temple and the cleanliness cult. This is another feature. And eventually we're going to meet the Romans. But right now we've met two of the big antagonists, the beginning of antagonism. Go and show this to the temple. And see what I did. This will be a testimony to them. And now we get the first evidence of disobedience of Jesus. Instead, the man went out and started talking freely and spreading the news so that Jesus wasn't able to enter a town openly. He remained outside in deserted places, but people came to him from everywhere. The messianic secret is needing to be in force because Jesus is gathering a whole crowd of people and some of them are here for the wrong reasons. All right, friends, that's it for now. Be safe, be sane, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. I am very happy to welcome back to the tent Sean McCoy and Chris Marchand, my two co-hosts, my co-producers, my conspirators in tent theology. And we like to thrash out some of the stuff that comes up during my talks and some of my teaching. It's more fun to thrash it out amongst friends. And I have been asking them to push back a bit as well, because it's not always just meant to be an echo chamber. Sean McCoy, what did you think? What kind of stuff do you want to push back on or talk to talk about based on talking about Jesus and the kingdom and politics and all this stuff that we've been doing? 
Yes, it's, it's going to sound a little bit bad that it's kind of like something that's in the back of my head, but this isn't you specifically, but it's more around the idea of the concept around dualism and really defining right or wrong. And that I think, you know, what what is the point of the Bible being inerrant? Like, what is the inherent value of the book being inherent? Or, I'm sorry, inerrant. And that is ultimately, as I see it, it gives you authority. And if I have authority, okay. I can have my way. And if I have my way, it's a sense of righteousness. And then it starts to divide. This is the group that gives it, and this is a group that doesn't. And what gives me that power is that 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 super authority of righteousness versus this, this uncomfortable format that we have around. Well, is it is it good or is it bad? Well, what if it's neither? No, 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 no. I, I need to know. I need to know where the good side is, and I need to know where the bad side is. Well. That'd be, that'd be great. In, in my experience throughout, and as I start to unpack this around deconstruction, around nationalism, around deconstruction, around kind of traditional Western uh, Christianity and, and, and being a Christian, it seems like the overriding element is just trying to get it right and be on the right team and be and have the perspective, the right translation, the right, the right formula, the right answer, the profitable business, you know, succeed, 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 and this becomes your litmus test. Right. So I where I where I would step back a couple of layers and all of this, and it just seems if you you can come at you can find places in the in the Bible to, to come down on this and say, here this is right. This here's the list of things you don't do and not do. I go back to the books like Habakkuk, and I think about books like uh, Ecclesiastes, that the lamenting and the and the struggle culturally, personally, like the crazy, like what are we doing? I think there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance. That's a very popular word, but if you really do a background on what all the things that go into this, this inability to think that there's anything before or after this, that could be worse, better. If it's either the worst it's ever been or the best it's ever been. Right. And I think yeah. if we can take a moment to realize that it's, it really isn't any different than it ever has been. This isn't the first time there's been a pandemic. You know, right. This isn't the first time that the world hasn't understood where we're going forward. Right. If you're, if you're standing if you're standing where you are today in January of 1942, what do you think the, the future looks like? You have no idea. Mainland Europe is now Germany and there's this juggernaut and right. you have no idea. Like you don't know how the story ends in 1942. Yeah. I would guess you're yeah. probably a little bit more afraid for the day-to-day -day comforts of life in January 1942 in the UK than you are today. You're not worried about Germany invading. So so, so if you, you want to get- Do you think that, so do you not, you don't like, is it that you don't like this idea that we're saying like we are at a crisis we're, we're, we've never been this way before where the Christianity's in the worst state it's ever been you don't like that kind of language it's no that because extreme language wait, you don't like it's not just that it's extreme but what's the emotion that it brings it brings a couple of them shame right. and it brings fear right. so anytime yeah, right. my, so anytime you try to impose ah, yeah. fear on somebody if i try to make you feel shame you you want kids to die ah, right you know you yeah. Work for oil and gas. Uh, oh, so you don't care yeah, about right. the environment? You want everybody to die? Yeah, right. You're not worried about the future? Right. You want the like? That's not what that you're using shame to try to control me, and it, it this becomes so a the nuclear option. You go straight to the right. Like yeah. how, how do I combat that? Well, no, I don't want that. Well, then you can't you can't you can't own a car that's a gas burning engine and say you love the environment. Well, yeah, I don't think that's I don't think that's exactly accurate or fair. Then and then, but if I I think those are powerful emotions. If you do something like I would, I will placate, and this is not to placate, but when I hear, like I remember back at your Nomad podcast, what that made me do was introspectively ask those questions of myself. So then if I feel from my own introspection around shame, fear, and like a challenge, a need to do something different, right? I think that's, that to me seems, that's of the spirit. That's different than, than somebody telling you you, you should. Right. 
you know, or or using this as saying, and then and then if somebody isn't getting it right, like those are those evil conservatives yeah. over there, Donald Trump and all this, they're just the minions of Satan. And it's like, yeah. that's why like from before, like I'd want to interview him because I don't, as much as I can see some of that and go, man, how in the world, right? Here we just had this, yeah. the, the most ridiculous presidential debate ever. I think we can't say that not to contradict what I'm saying, but at least in modern, in my lifetime, I would say. Like, the, I mean, right. I think they've all been ridiculous in a way. You go back to Nixon and Kennedy, and they talk about the fact that you could see one versus the other, and it made a difference of whether or not you could actually see them in person versus a radio, and that's actually the difference, not the content. So I think we have this in, in us, this, this challenge of how do we how do we read between all this stuff and make sense of it? And I would, I would even say the answer is not the first or the second, it's the third, and that's to push back. And like think of Jerzak around, I'm just going to be me, whether it's I, I'm for immigration and I'm against the abortion of of you know of any baby regardless right. of the state and it's just this is just what yeah. I it's not a left or right thing and just give that yeah give that back to them and make them deal with it so it's like a a, a refusal to buy into that panic uh, that kind of atmosphere of extreme panic because i guess there's a sort of an arrogance in me like i'm talking about like i'm letting you push at me like when i say things like it has never been this bad before all i'm doing is i'm just setting myself up on some pinnacle as if all of history has led to us right as if we are now the ones you know of which we've made the worst mistake that ever has been made that is itself kind of the inverse of that is still arrogant isn't it but it's like it's kind of the inverse of saying we're the most powerful and the best the world has ever been to say we're the worst the world's ever been is equally as self-regarding isn't it in some ways but this but this is where grace is needed for all of us yeah now i we could turn this and go see Stephen. You don't know, blah, blah, blah. But that's not, that's not the answer either, right? Where's the growth or the opportunity to transform, to evolve, to truly evolve thinking, processes, cultural operations, business operations, anything, right? In our own lives, we've constantly evolved and changed things. And we, get, we feel like if somebody's done something one way, it can never be the other. And yet here's Paul slash Saul. And, I, and I, I've had this conversation with people going, you know, he started out murdering Christians, like not just because he was in a, in a military, like, he woke up thinking this is the right thing to do. I've heard you say that yeah. this is the right thing to do. And this is the guy that wrote half the New Testament. Yeah. Look, would you would you listen to Adam Jones? Was Adam Jones the guy that did InfoWars down here? Or who's who's become so polarizing? Or what if Donald Trump himself came out and said, I am a change man in whatever way? Yeah. Would there be would we have the capacity to even allow that to happen? Would we, we even just, yeah, right. It's just you're evil and I don't care. Anything you do is evil and even if you say that you're just you're placating and you're gonna whatever i just think it's i mean it is connected isn't it to what jesus is doing in mark where he's you know you remember you know i'm laying out all the different uh kind of characters or or groups there's factions out there and they're all hating each other and against each other and jesus makes an effort to essentially identify with individuals he he doesn't identify with any one group but he does identify with individuals from each of those groups Right. right which is interesting isn't it, it right. he doesn't yeah he doesn't sort of say uh my way or the highway kind of thing there's right. like an ability he has all these different people on his team that actually are all from very different ideologies right and even even from, we've talked about this a little bit before even the, the parables that you know the good samaritan you know who who the people are in the story if you're obsessed with the actual title of each person in the story i think you're it's incomplete it's not wrong this is where this is an example of what i would say it's an incomplete understanding of the depth of that story. If you're focused right. on the Samaritan and the, and the 
the Pharisee right. and who the people are specific. Where this guy was from the you know the tribe of Judah or Levi, and he should have done this because of his. If that's just, and I think you're there, but you need to keep going. That could be the ISIS member, the Republican, and the you know and the and the whoever. It could be you fill in your favorite group of people and your favorite label. Then I think because that's because the kingdom is always relevant. And it's always and it's always applicable always across relevant. the board. Don't don't limit it. And it's something I hear all the time. Don't put a com, don't put a period where there's a comp where there needs to be a comp. But I, I do want to bring I'm gonna bring Chris into this because last week, if you'll remember, Chris and I were talking about Facebook. And it's, you know, we're always talking about it. and I, I kind of brought up the idea is is it even possible to have like a truthful conversation on Facebook? Is it even possible? And so I wonder whether there is okay. Well, I'm not, I, I admit, Sean, maybe I'm not allowed to say the world has never been this bad and Christians have never been this bad. I do want to point out that there's, I want to at least claim that some things like social media have, we have, ne humans have never before been able to swill their opinions around in such speed and at such power and at such volume. Like we've been overwhelmed. It, I've, I, it's almost like mm -hmm. we have lost our societies that have been overtaken by social media have lost the ability to, to think or communicate. And that's gotta be unique. I that's can never happened. Before. I, I can see hundred percent. Yeah. So maybe that the heart of man hasn't changed. Yeah. Chris, what were you going to say? So I have a friend who likened this, um, this very, this very new phenomenon of social media to uh, in, instituting um, processed foods into our diets. Okay. And like, 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 it's such a new thing and it's happened so quickly that a shock. our human bodies have had to adjust right. in the past you know, hundred years or so to this new processed food. And so social media is like this similar thing. It's like, it's too fast. We don't, we haven't been able to adapt to it yet. And it's been very unhealthy. You know, now we're, you know, now we're obese in a sense right. <laughs> and, and we have some heart disease, uh, you know, it's so, yeah, I, I, I appreciated my friend's kind of parallel there. Where do you think Chris, the kingdom, if the kingdom is always relevant to every age, how do you mm. think the kingdom is relevant to social media? How can you have kingdom values on Facebook? Oh boy. Um, so I've, I've, I've really been pondering lately uh, based off of how you ended up followers on the way, uh, a canonic, a self-emptying, right. a, a giving up of power to others. Okay. So I've been contemplating that a lot in my everyday life in every sense. Yeah. And I think what that means is giving somebody the benefit of the doubt sometimes. Okay. And then when I really see somebody being evil, then it's just like, well, then I'm, what am I going to do there necessarily? I mean, I can call somebody out, but often trying to engage in a conversation and in such a way where I do give them a place in a sense, a chance to at least say what they need to say. Okay. And uh, in the midst of that, I try to insert, well, here's what, Christ would would follow. Here's what Christ would call us to, <laughs> and and again, it's it's always up for them to yeah. to take or leave that, you know. So, but 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 then again, when you were talking at the last episode, it reminded me of a of a progression. I mean, uh, there there is a call to abandon social media because it's not good for us. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 not just one person thinking, oh, I can't be on this anymore. It's like there's books now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it it might be one of the things that we're meant to change, repent, change your ways. <laughs> have, have either of you seen the documentary on Netflix, The Social Dilemma? Yeah. I've, I'm afraid to watch it. 
Very good. And also the Jaron, the book that a lot of that is based on, the 10 reasons why you should delete your social media right now. Yeah. That's good to read. It, you know, I, I feel like there, there's the kingdom is evident in social media by its absence. <laughs> the ability to really engage with other people with empathy. Um, uh, the social media structures work against thinking positively. They, they, the algorithms are leading us towards pessimism and hatred and fear because that's what attracts our eyeballs. And the kingdom is all about like, set your eyes on things above. And <laughs> so I wonder whether there might be an argument for abandoning it um, to repent of social media. I know lots of people think it's a good tool and really useful, but then they always say, oh, it's like a book. It's like the printing press. I'm like, I don't think it is like the printing press. I think it's a new thing. <laughs> I was going to say, it makes me also, right before the uh, pandemic, I read the book, The Science of Fear by Daniel Gardner. I don't know okay. if you've heard that, but it actually that one. is, um, it kind of lays out the business case, if you will, for why yeah. news is put out the way it is and all the rest of this stuff is the way it is, because kind of this, this worst, most, because the sad part about it from a psychological standpoint is if we don't have a little bit of that uh, fear in us, if you will, we don't pay attention as much. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's this weird human condition, and then you can you can flip it to your advantage. You know, if, you're, if your business model is to get people to stay on your website and read Fox News all day long, well, you're not gonna do that filling it with stories of this no. bad thing almost happened, this, yeah. ama this amazing thing almost, you know, th or just these really nice things happen. People aren't gonna stick around. We're, yeah. we're our own worst enemy. And that's why I think the, the journey with this is within, how do I, how do I respond to that? Now, I, I got off social media because I wanted to be more effective conversations. I don't know if it's a right or wrong thing, regardless of the, of the rest of that, because if we don't step into these challenges as well, if we don't try to find how we use these mediums in a positive way and we just disregard them, um, I, I don't know if that's the answer as well, you know, in terms of like just getting rid of it. Or if we just, if, if no woman ever had a, you know, ever wore a, a short skirt and just wore burkas, right? If we, if we never let, you know, men and women work together <clears throat> in an environment, we'd never have issues at work. We'd you know, you can get absolute and draconian, and I don't think that that I don't think that's what Jesus and Jesus doesn't. Well, then do. it wouldn't solve the problem. No, you're just ignoring the. Yeah, you're, I mean, we we do have societies where men and women don't work together, and where everybody wears burkas and no short skirt. Those are not utopians for male female relations. Like, we have these societies. A Puritan. The, we've had Puritans where the Christians were in charge of all the sexual morality. Right. It didn't do away with sexual abuse and lust and sin, and so. <laughs> Like, like uh, you know, Paul says in Colossians, these things have the appearance of common sense, but they are unable to tame the human, yeah. the human heart, <laughs> tame your passions, right? Well, I have a, I have a place to take us to based off of the, your teaching on Mark that I yeah, think maybe is related. Yeah, yeah. So towards the end, you were, you know, there's a decent chunk, a section where you're talking about Jesus and the demons and how he responded yeah. to the, yeah. the demons. And um one something that struck me, you know, you can maybe say, yeah, I, I already knew this, Chris. I was, I'm way ahead of you. But something that struck me is that Jesus is like the inverse of the demons. He's he's his own agent of chaos. Yes. Uh, wow. Because you, you talk about him going from place to place, kind of at the at the whim of the spirit. And yeah. uh, what was interesting about what 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 Jesus does is he liberates, he sets free, he forgives, he heals, he transforms, and he does so as an authority figure. 
Right. But it's the authority figure that gives up authority. He gives away power and thus empowers. Yes. Yeah. And then the demons are the inverse or the opposite. You know, sometimes I get those mixed up, but they oppress, they control, you know, they, and they, uh, they yeah. basically cause life to shrivel and yeah. they're not actually an authority. So they're the inverse of Jesus. But I, I like this understanding of Christ as, as agent of, he's, he's his own agent of chaos. And that might not sit well with us in our, some of our more evangelical traditions, but I don't know. That was, I found that really intriguing. Well, that's our friend, Justin Bronson Berenger, right? The Christian anarchist position, yep. which is the Holy Spirit blows where he will. Like he's, he's not confined to our institutions and and uh the book of acts is absolutely chock full of this as well like where and jesus is marching around the wilderness and he's not just living in the areas that people like him are supposed to live in he actually shows very little regard for institutions he dismantles them at a moment's notice which is anarchic <laughs> but it's not chaos maybe chris i don't know if I, maybe right because right. anarchy is not without order. It just means a lack of uh, domination. It's, it means order without domination. It, like for friendships or relationships are unable to form in a place of chaos. I, I think you're right. I think you have a good yeah. point. And maybe here's what I would say to that is when Jesus is doing it to the person, for them, it feels like chaos. It feels in the like moment. that's it. Yeah. It feels like it. It feels like it. <laughs> and isn't it interesting? Like we're going to see this in Mark 3. They're going to even say, Jesus, there's something of the, Beelzebub, there's something of a demon about you. It feels demonic when you're around. And he gets likened to demons, which is very interesting. And I wonder whether you're right. There's something there. It's like, it feels unsettling. It doesn't feel safe. You're attacking our strongholds. Right. And, but those are all the areas that I think we need. We, that, that's what gives us that. We have to have those comforts. We, our fear is they're not going to have that. What do I do if... I can't pay the mortgage tomorrow. What do I do if my house floods? What do I do You're if taking my, away my precious yeah, my, safety. my comfort, my safety? And and then, but I think the irony is it's not and it's not saying that we we don't have those comforts, but it's it's being able to be, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's the dichotomy of everything. It's right, wrong. It's good, bad, but both, but neither. As you think of Janet Williams, who I want to have on the pod, but and the apophatic theology kind of thing. Yeah. Well, this is where I mean, you raised a good point, Sean. Like. Um, yes, uh, the, the the way of Jesus actually is asking you not to place a lot of value in your social safety nets. That is true, actually. Your politics, your economics, your social class, your nationality, a lot of that stuff you're actually not going to have to rely on. But Jesus didn't come preaching an individualist spiritual relationship to God. He came preaching the kingdom. So he's saying, come out of old systems and into my system he's not saying get rid of systems and then live all by yourself in some sort of weird state of individualism he's saying come out of those systems and come into my system so the kingdom is itself a form of protection and provision and and identity and like all the things that you're leaving behind when you come to follow jesus you get in his kingdom from his people so it's it, it's not a, it's not becoming a free agent. It's come and join. This is why we use this language of alternative politics. It's like come and join the alternative system. So 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 last thing I just it makes me think of one of the most famous songs ever. You know, Imagine, and I remember in a yeah. Bible study not you know many years ago there was a, a guy that was leading it, <clears throat> and his whole point was, this is actually, <laughs> this is what Jesus is talking about all the time. This song is the embodiment of the kingdom, and yet 
we see it as a separate thing from the church. I know it's, I've always my whole life been brought up to think of John Lennon as that song being like really anti-Christian. I'm like, it's not actually, it isn't really anti the vision of Jesus at all in lots of ways. John Lennon has his own humanistic utopian version of it. Right. But there's a lot of stuff there that a follower of Jesus could be like, yeah, nodding away. (laughs) Yeah. Listen, friends, it's been so fun to uh, to chat with you, and I look forward very much to our next one, where we're going to go into Mark 2. We're slowly inching our way through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we're going to put a few of these out, right, on our podcast, and then eventually we're going to put the rest of the Mark studies into the Patreon, because it's probably unfair on all our podcasts. Uh, friends to force them to listen to 25 episodes of Mark (laughs) when that's not what they signed up for. So we're going to do a couple more episodes of the Mark study, and then we are going to put the rest into the Patreon account, which is very easy to sign up for if you want to continue accessing this material. So from Sean and Chris and myself, Stephen, we thank you for coming on this journey, and we look forward to talking to you next week. Farewell. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.